Bibles now, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. And this evening we're in the third part of a message, Hope and Holiness. And this is taken from the last few verses in chapter 2 and the first few verses of chapter 3. And the hope that we're talking about is the hope of every believer. It's the hope that Christ is going to return to this earth, and it's the hope that he will deliver us from a sin-cursed world, that he is taking us to a better place, that we'll no longer have heartaches and troubles as we experience here. We'll be free from the oppression of sin. We'll get a new body that's made like the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have hope of final salvation, which is our final deliverance from sin. And the second part we're talking about here is holiness, and this is the realization that all of this is going to happen. And it's the coming of Christ, knowing that it's imminent, and because he is coming back, and because we believe this, and because we have been called from darkness into light, holiness should be produced by that knowledge. Now, if you'll look at chapter 3, verse number 3, for just a moment, John says, "...and every man that hath this hope in him..." purifieth himself even as he is pure. And that's the part we're going to concentrate on in the message tonight. I want to talk to you about holiness in the Christian's life based upon the knowledge of Christ's return. Now, before we go further, we want to read the scriptures that tie these thoughts together. Uh, There's a vital connection between the coming of Christ and Uh, the believer's life. Those have a very close connection. So if you look at 1 John chapter 2, verse number 28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The outline for the messages is found in verse number 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And John has provided for us a very simple alliteration for our outline, which is abide, appear, and ashamed. And those three words tie these verses together and give us the thoughts that we're considering in these messages. So we're going to back up just a little. I'm going to briefly look at what we talked at in the first two messages. And that first word that John gave us is the word abide. So we talked about abiding in Christ. That, that's uh, something that all Christians must do is to abide in Christ. And John states it as a very simple command. He, he states it as a very gentle command because in the endearing terms as a father speaking to his children, he says, and now little children abide in him. And so he does speak in gentle terms, but we ought not to pass it off and think that it's not a command because it is. In fact, it's a very vital command and it's one that's based upon sound doctrine. The means of our salvation remaining in Christ is the abiding of a Christian. And that is a very greatly misunderstood doctrine. And it's maligned uh, by those who think that when you say this, that you're teaching salvation by works. 
Those that are opponents of what we call lordship salvation make that claim. But what John is actually doing here is stating a doctrine that's repeated many times in the Scripture, and it's the requirement that Christians must persevere in the faith. A couple of weeks ago, I listed some scriptures that are very clear on the subject, and I gave you a long list of those. And they ranged all the way from what Jesus said when he said, those that endure to the end shall be saved, and to what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Colossians when he says that we must be grounded and settled in the faith so that we're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And those are commands for perseverance. And we're not talking about salvation by works, but we're talking about instructions in grace. The Holy Spirit is what enables a Christian to persevere, and the evidence of his Christianity is the fact that he does persevere. And this is why John writes in the 19th verse of that second chapter that those who don't remain in the faith, those who go out from us, prove that they never were actually in the faith. Then the second word that John gave us is the word appear. And so we talked about the appearing of Christ. And appearing is the middle word. It's the one that connects the other two words. We abide in Christ because we know that he's going to appear and we live so as not to be ashamed when he comes. And if a Christian did not have that hope that Christ would come, that he would appear, then we really don't have any reason to continue in the faith. Now, I suppose that we could make an argument that, well, if we live good lives and if we live holy lives, that's good for society in general, and that would be true. But I think it would also be true that if we didn't know that there was a reward on the other side, that there was a better life that was coming, then we would very soon grow weary in well-doing, because if we die like dogs, what's the use? Uh, What's the use of not just going ahead and living in the lust of the flesh? I mean, why not be concerned only about me? And that is exactly the way the world lives without Christ. They're self-consumed, and it's because they don't have our hope. The highest aspirations that they have is this life. And so what they do is they grab everything in this life for them, and that's why you find so much selfishness in the world and why you find uh, just the poverty and things that go on and people that don't share what they have. It, it has to do with the fact they have no hope except for what they have in this world. And so the difference between us and them is the hope that we have in Christ. And it's not a doubtful hope. It is a sure hope that Christ is coming back for us, and there is a far better life ahead than the one that we live here. So we always live in the expectation of Christ's return. And that is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. We're studying that in Revelation right now, and again, we talk about the convergence of themes that we've had in our three studies, and we, we found out that, that this doctrine of Christ's second coming is one of the Bible's most prominent doctrines, second only to faith. Faith is spoken of more times in the Bible than any other doctrine, and right behind that is the doctrine of the second coming. And in this scripture, we find that we also have a visible, uh, visible hope of that return of Christ. The angels at the ascension when he left this world said, you see him going up into heaven, you'll see him coming back in the way that he went away. And then we also have the hope of glorification when he returns. Verse number 2 says, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so you combine all of that information, you put all of that together, and what is the conclusion? Well, you find it in verse 3. 
And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. And so if you know this, you'll live a life of holiness. So why do you do it? Well, John gives us the answer with a third word that we want to consider, and it's the word ashamed. We don't want to be ashamed at the return of Christ. So how are we going to avoid being ashamed? Well, the answer is holiness. We live a holy life so that when Christ comes, we're not ashamed. Now, I want you to notice again, uh, notice again a, an important consideration here in verse number 3 so that we don't really misunderstand what we're reading here. It says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Now, make sure that you understand what John means when he says, Have this hope in him. John is not saying here, And every man that has this hope in him mean himself. And to clarify that, we could read it this way. And every man that hath this hope in Christ purifieth himself. So it's not, do you have this hope in you? And that would, of course, make some sense. But rather, the emphasis here remains upon Christ. And the hope in him is hope in Christ. Because he's the basis of the purification rather than the hope as the basis. And I hope that made sense to you. It's like saying that Christ is the object of our faith. Only in this case, Christ is the object of our hope. And so we don't have faith for faith's sake, and we don't have hope for hope's sake. Both of those have to have an object, or neither one of them has any grounds. So the basis then, according to John, for purifying ourselves is the second coming of Christ. He is coming to change our bodies, and he's coming to do everything that he said that he would do. Now, if you remember, we talked a little bit about this in our study of Philippians. In the third chapter of Philippians, Paul said, For our conversation, that means our citizenship, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And that's the same subject that we're considering tonight. So Paul and John agree on this. We are right now citizens of heaven, even though we don't yet live there. And while we live here, we're to live with a character of a person who is a citizen of another place. We have the habits and we have the customs of that other place, and we don't want to be so familiar with the world and what goes on here and acting like the world that we actually appear to be citizens of this world. And we should tie that theme, that whole theme of 1 John into that because this is what we're trying to discover. Which ones that are living in the world are actually citizens of another world? And the answer to the question is those who live holy lives. There's a demonstrated difference in them. Now we want to look at some things here that describe them. Uh, first of all, we, we could say that they are living in the light of Christ's return. They're influenced by the knowledge that Christ is coming back to earth. Now, Peter made a great case for this, how this knowledge influences a person's behavior. And if you'll look just before this into 2 Peter chapter 3, we see here that Peter is on the same wavelength as John, and he's speaking here of Christ's return. And this is the same scripture that we read a couple of weeks ago, 2 Peter 3 beginning in verse number 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then 
that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So, if you truly do believe that Christ is coming back, and you believe that those that are left in this world will suffer the retribution of God for sin, and if you believe that God is going to burn up this world, if you truly believe that, won't that change your behavior? Wouldn't you live holy and godly knowing that this is going to happen? And that's Peter's argument. Now, if you're convinced of the truth, it means that you have every incentive to live differently in the world. And if you say that you are a believer in Christ and you don't actually live differently from the world, then your, your life or your, your confession rings hollow. So we need to consider that every command that we find in Scripture that we live a holy and godly life is pressed upon us because of the position that we have in Christ. It's because of who we are that we do these things. The Bible's not concerned about you and how you live and what you do if you're not in Christ. The only message that the Bible has for you before you're saved is repent. So God's not concerned about how you live. He's not concerned about uh, what you do. He doesn't have any message for you. And God doesn't have any benefits for you either. And even if somebody says, well, what about common grace? There, there is this such thing as common grace, isn't there? Well, you only have common grace as a lost person because it's the fallout of what happens to Christians. Christians need rain. And so a lost person gets rain because he's nearby. And that's the only reason that he does. And that's why we can say that prayer is actually useless for someone who's a non-Christian. And I'll put it as bluntly as I can. God is not interested in the prayers of those who don't know Christ. He's not interested in the prayers of lost people. He's only concerned with one thing. When it comes to a lost person, they must repent and believe. And if you haven't done that, you can save your breath. But then on the other hand, if you have repented and if you have believed in Christ, then you need to know this, God is hot on your trail. Because then God is concerned about everything that you do. David said this in the 139th Psalm, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. And so the thought here is that wherever you are, you can never escape the watchful eye of God. And that's great news for a Christian, if you're living in the light of his return. And if you're doing something else, then you need to know what David is telling us here, that you're not going to escape God's judgment. And that's also terrible news for someone who's not a Christian because they will never escape God's judgment either. Now let me continue, though, that thought that every command that we have in Scripture for perseverance and for the abiding in Christ, for sanctification, for our holiness, all of that is because of our position. And the position is stated for us in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. So there's the position. We are sons of God. You are in Christ. You have hope in Christ. 
And because you have that position, God orders the affairs of your life. And you accept God's commands. You accept what God tells you to do. And you live like you should because you're aware of that position. And the problem of a person living an unholy life is that they're not clearly thinking about who they are. I received a message from someone the other day that's a member of the church and not coming anymore. And, and the message was sort of a defense of not being in church and not doing what they should do. And this person said, my father knows who I am. My father knows who I am. That's not really the problem. If you're a saved person, of course the Father knows who you are. The real problem that we're addressing here is, do you know who you are? And if you do know who you are, then you understand why you must live in holiness and why you obey God's commands. And the problem is that people who don't live in obedience to God's commands, and yet they say they're Christians, they must have forgotten who they are. The position makes all the difference in the world. Let me go back to 2 Peter again. If you'll look in chapter 1 for just a moment, Peter uh, starts the letter out by listing seven virtues found in a Christian life. If you look at verse number 5, he says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound... They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is living in the light of Christ's return. And you can tie that with the verses that we read in chapter 3 just a moment ago. And if you'll look at the next verse here in Second uh, Peter 1 verse 9, he says, He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So that's the problem of not living in the light of Christ's return. They've forgotten what they were saved from. And people go back into their old sins as if they weren't saved at all. And the terrible thing about it is they've forgotten about what sin does. It was sin that crucified Christ. And so every time that a Christian goes back into sin, it's just like driving those nails into his hands all over again. And if there is no holiness in your life, it's denying the Christian faith. And isn't that the point of John's letter? This is what we've been looking at over and over again and will continue to look at. Uh, John started it out of the first chapter with this. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And so those who are not living in the light of Christ's return and have not been changed by that knowledge... The argument is that they're lying about their confession. And so when you take your eyes off Christ and you're not looking for his appearing, that's when you start to get bogged down with all the cares that are in the world. And the reason that you do this is because you're not looking at the big picture. You're looking at the immediate. You're looking at what's going on in your life right now when we're encouraged to keep looking for Christ's return because that's when we have the big picture. That's when we see what God's going to do with us, where he's taking us, and, and what he's going to, what the blessings that he has for it, for us. So we look at that big picture of when Christ returns, and it's all tied to a person's position. And if you know your position as a son or a daughter of God, then your attitude will change. And a change in attitude repositions the character of your life. And so people that are living in the light of Christ's return are living in holiness. Now, secondly, 
They are, here's another characteristic of them, they are lavished with God's love. And again, a position is the key. The Father bestowed his love upon us. And we don't really get the full impact of what John says in verse number 1 in our English translation. He begins with the word, behold. And remember how we looked at that word in our study of Matthew? Matthew is fond, if you read Matthew, he's fond of saying, behold. When John, or when, excuse me, when Jesus cleansed the leper, Matthew said, behold, there came a leper. And that's a word of astonishment. Uh, Matthew was astonished at that because lepers just don't come out. Lepers don't approach people. Lepers are forbidden by the law to come out in public. They don't approach people. And so when he came, Matthew said, behold, he's surprised. Here comes a leper. And that's the thought that we see here when John says, Behold what manner of love. He's saying, Astonishing, amazing that God should have love like this for us. We're vile, wicked sinners, but God loved us while we were yet in our sins. And then the verse goes even deeper than that because he says, Behold what manner of love. And that word manner in the original language means this is extraordinary. This is inexplicable. It's outside the realm of anything that we know in the world. And he says, this is beyond us, it's above us, it's alien. It lies outside of the realm of human experience. And that same word was used in Matthew chapter 8 when Jesus calmed the storm on the sea. And they, after he had done that, the, those people in the boat, those disciples in the boat and others, they said, what manner of man is this? What manner of man? And what that means is, is this somebody from outside of the world? Is this an ALF? Is this an alien life form? Is that what he is? And we know the answer to that, don't we? Yes, he is an alien because he's God. He's not of this world. And then amazingly, we just read the same words a few moments ago in 2 Peter chapter 3 where Peter says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? Very same word. And what's the answer to it? You should live like an alien. Live like somebody who's not of this world, foreign to the world, because you are a citizen of another country. And that's the amazement that John feels as he writes that first verse. God has lavished his love upon us, and that is exceedingly above anything that we've ever known. The hymn writer said, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To, lo- to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. John didn't write that. But that's exactly the sentiment that he has. The very same amazement that God would send Christ to die for us. So God lavished his love upon us. And when you live in the realization of that, doesn't it cause you to live in gratitude for what God has done for you? There's one author who put it this way. He says, It was a free, uninfluenced, undeserved, unmerited, spontaneous, and sovereign love from God that has no human explanation, nor does it have a human counterpart, because there was nothing in us whatsoever to elicit that love. He loved us because it was in him to love us. And that is amazing to John. Some of you are probably thinking right now, well, Pastor, I'm glad that you finally got this. 
Because all we ever hear is hellfire and brimstone messages. We never hear anything at all about God's love. Well, the truth of the matter is, I, I've never departed from the subject of God's love. And that's because everything that God does is bounded by his love. He's lovingly merciful and gracious, but he's also lovingly vengeful and just. You see, his mercy and his grace is showered upon his people because he loves. And because he loves us, he also brings down the hammer on sin. And because he loves us, he sends the wicked to hell. Maybe you haven't thought about that. But he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to live with sin. And he doesn't want us forever to live with sinners. And so when he returns, he's not coming to plant daisies. When Christ comes again, he will judge the world in righteousness. That's what the Word of God says. And why does he do it? He does it because he loves his people. And that's why you can't confuse God's love with some syrupy kind of notion that God puts smiley stickers on everybody. You know, one thing that John the Baptist didn't do, when, when he was preaching, he didn't say, Smile, God loves you. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus also said, repent. That's the message. And Jesus said, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now the question is, are you going to be ashamed when Christ comes because his love has been lavished on you? It's an out-of-the-world, inexplicable kind of love. And will you be ashamed because you have treated him with an ungrateful heart by not living in holiness as he's asked us to do? You know, when I was young, I didn't, I didn't get too many spankings. And uh, I think that's because I was a nearly perfect child. At least that's what I've been told. Well, my perfection, perfection probably didn't have anything to do with it. But when I was growing up, I, I, I wasn't really a problem child. I wasn't a problem teenager. And I actually didn't become a problem adult. And one of the reasons that I didn't was because... Bob, what are you laughing at? He, Bob was, must, must have been a problem adult. I don't know. Um... But one of the reasons that I didn't was because of the respect that I had for my dad. I mean, I did what I was supposed to do because I respected who my dad was. Now, I, I was, became a Christian when I was only seven years old. And, of course, that has something to do with the change in my life, obviously. But there are many times that I never really thought about what my Heavenly Father thought of me. And maybe some of you don't either. You're not always thinking about what your Heavenly Father thinks of you. But there were a whole lot of times when I thought about what my dad thought of me. And so there, I, I did what I was supposed to do because I wanted to honor his name. And I think that there's a lot of children, probably most children, don't think that way today. Now, hopefully, you do love your parents and you realize that you should realize that when you say bad things and when you post hateful words and when you act immorally, that is a reflection on your parents. And what it does, it shows terrible ingratitude for them, especially if you're living in their house. And so think how much worse that it is when you dishonor God. Your parents love you, but their love is bounded by their humanity. And we see here that God's love is, is out of the world. It's, it's out of this world. It's beyond human comprehension. And so when you dishonor God by sin, that becomes a heinous wound to God. God's matchless love is a reason for us to live a pure and holy life. And when you have this hope in Christ, John says you will purify yourself even as he is pure. Now, thirdly, God's people are described in this way. They are looking to be like Christ. 
Christ-likeness is what we have been designed for. We purify ourselves even as he is pure. And we've discussed many times how that is the goal of our salvation. Long before now, long before the, for the time we're living in, at the foundation of the world, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And our conformity in this life begins with our sanctification when we've trusted Christ. But we've also noted in the passage that that's not complete. Our sanctification is not complete until we actually receive our glorification. And so we can be a little bit confused by John's words here. Uh, How do we purify ourselves? He says, purify yourself. Well, how do we do that? Is that our work? I mean, isn't this God's work? Isn't that what God does for us? God's the one who makes us pure. Well, we have to understand the difference between being cleansed from our sins and being purified from them. In the first chapter, John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, cleansing... It's God's work, and that's when he takes the guilt of our sin away. It's when he washes that stain of sin out of our souls, and we stand justified before God. And we cannot cleanse ourselves in that way. No matter how hard we try, we are never going to be justified before God by our own works. That's God's work to do for us. It's his work alone. And when we discussed that verse, we talked about how it works in two ways. The primary application of the verse is actually about sanctification. So John is talking about people that are already saved. And people that are already saved need to confess their sins still and be cleansed from them through that confession. Now, not a confession to a priest, of course, but confession directly between you and God. But it's also true of our initial salvation. We're forgiven of our sin and we're justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's cleansing. But purification is different. Purification is the application of holiness. So whenever we avoid sin, we're being purified. And what it means is to actively strive to be like Christ. And it's really not trying to be better than your neighbor. That's not good enough. It's not trying to be better than your neighbor. It's not trying to be a cut above the world. And that's why you'll never be able to achieve this in any kind of performance like haircuts and length of skirts and culottes versus pants and polyester versus denim. You're not going to get there that way. This is the positive activity of being like Christ. It's it's Christ who's the standard. Now, the world does their thing, and we're not too much concerned about the world is doing because we don't care about their standards. But we don't care, I mean, really, I don't care about the preacher's standard either. And I don't care about the standard that some church has set as their standard. My concern is about who Christ is and what Christ wants. And when I'm purifying myself, it's my desire to be like him, not to be above somebody else. It's to be like Christ so that I'm not ashamed when he comes. And so the New Testament doesn't tell me just let go of things and let God do this for me. I have to strive for this. I have to give effort to it. And it's not anything different from what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He said, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of the flesh and spirit, of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's the same that he says in Colossians chapter 3. Mortify. Therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And that's something you do because that's 
command is given to you. And listen to the context that Paul speaks this in and see if it's not exactly the same as what John says. The preceding verse puts those two verses I just read into context. And it says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Then he goes on, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. So I think in three messages I've given you the gist of the passage. We should be able to understand this. We abide in Christ by persevering in the faith. We will live so as not to be ashamed when he comes, and we abide in holiness because that's the way that God requires for us to abide. And we do it all because we have the hope that Christ will appear. He's coming back for us, and we have a sure hope of his return. And so that's what we call the big picture of salvation. See, God's love is so great that what he did was to diverse heaven and earth to bring us to him. And if we believe it, if we truly do believe it, it'll make a difference in our lives. As John says, we will purify ourselves even as Christ is pure. So the evidence of that purity is our holiness, and that's the distinguishing mark of Christians. Who is a Christian and who is not? That's what we've been trying to discover in First John. It's the theme. Who is a Christian and who is not? And it goes on, and we'll take up some more in the next section. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have spent in your word tonight. For those who have come, Lord, we do pray that there would be holiness among your people. Uh, we know that this is the way that you bless us. It's the way that you have designed for us to live. It's how we're kept in your salvation. It's how we abide in you by the holiness of our lives. But at the same time, we also know that we can't do any of it by ourselves. This is work that is enabled by the Holy Spirit, and it's only by the Holy Spirit who lives in the Christian because no other people have him. And if we do have the Holy Spirit in us, we are guaranteed we will persevere, and the evidence that we know you is the holiness of our lives. Bless your people tonight, Lord. Strengthen us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.